0: The Art Newspaper Weekly podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued.
1: It's very, very enjoyable smoking. That's why it won't go away. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs>
0: Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke, and the sound you've just heard is David Hockney laughing, a key moment in Tessa Dean's film portrait of the artist, hence the whirring projector in the background. I'm at the National Portrait Gallery, one of three London venues dedicating shows to Dean this spring. You'll hear my interview with her later in the podcast. But we begin this week talking about Venice... Salvatore Settis is the distinguished Italian archaeologist and art historian who is famous in Italy as its cultural conscience. Editors of newspapers there will always give him space as he wittily, learnedly and furiously denounces the failure of his country to look after its heritage. His latest book, If Venice Dies, has already created a stir in the US, Germany, France and Italy itself. Anna Summers-Cox, the founder of the art newspaper, is a former chair of the Venice Imperil Fund. She continues to campaign passionately to save Venice from the inexorable rise of sea levels and a corrupt political establishment. She went to the British Museum to talk to settis about his book.
2: So, Salvatore Settis, you say repeatedly in this book of yours that Venice is a paradigm for other cities of the tensions between its historic nature and modern needs. Would you like to expand on that a little bit
1: well I think that normally the uh, historic city now is uh, is almost invisible because the historic nucleus of uh, of most cities even in a country like Italy is uh, is basically so much surrounded by a very very periphery of not very good architectural quality that you don't even see what the historical center is about in Venice you are you are forced to see it because in Venice the uh, the uh, lagoon makes uh, the historical city a, a center which is uh, very clearly distinguishable from, from everything else that's one of the things that make Venice a padding the other point is that Venice more than, uh, than most other cities is being uh, um, constantly emptied its inhabitants, particularly if they are young or old or, or low-income people, are, are, are forced to move somewhere else. So this, this same process is happening more or less anywhere in historical cities in Europe, uh, but in Venice in it is particularly evident also in, uh, in purely numerical terms. So I think that starting from Venice we can think about uh, the future of historical cities more generally.
2: Your title, um, If Venice Dies, suggests do you think Venice might die. What do you think are the signs of this?
1: Well, I think that uh, I, I decided to use the, the metaphor of uh, death, though I knew that uh, death in Venice is uh, in itself a topos, so I could uh, run a risk in, in, in using this topos. But the reason why I use this, this metaphor is that I, I really think that a city must be thought of as a uh, sort of collective identity of a collective body that is made not just of its uh, uh, streets and piazzas and palazzos and so forth and so on but also of of people living in it. So there is a body of the city and the soul of the city precisely as we have a body and a soul or a mind or a conscience and awareness. So I think that in, in in this respect, the metaphor of death is very powerful, because it can it can, uh, it can uh, uh, signify that uh, um, a city might die metaphorically um, once uh, the city would lose its own identity, its own awareness, its own conscience, and if a city loses the citizens and uh, the, the the fluxo of tourists takes. The, the flux of authorities takes the place of uh, of, of the citizens living, actually living in the, in the city, feeling they are part of it. So this is a sort of death.
2: So if you had to choose between the two great threats to the city, one of them obviously being rising um, sea levels, and the other one being the risk that it will precisely lose its inhabitants, it will lose its Venezianità, which of the two do you think is the greatest danger?
1: Well, I think that losing uh, its, uh, uh, its Venetianità. Uh, th- this is probably not the way or how I put it, because I would have no objections if uh, in, a number of people coming from all over the world would very um, uh, consciously made the choice of living, in, of actually really living in Venice and, and, and making Venice the center of their life. So I think that uh, losing the soul doesn't necessarily mean losing the Venezianità as it was historically meant and as, as it was uh, uh, interpreted by the Liga Veneta or uh, some forms of, uh, uh, of patriot of, of local patriotism. That's, that's not what I have in mind. I, I, I have in mind people living, uh, making Venice their own city. And I think that this is the, the greatest danger, actually, because the uh, I think Venice, more than many other cities, needs people who can believe that it is possible to live in Venice, with all the strange things that living in Venice uh, entails, such as moving by boat or walking, not having a car and these sort of things that are so uh, distant from common experience in other cities around the world.
2: When I was a child I thought that the precisely the moving by boat and having water instead of streets was absolutely the best thing ever, why I loved Venice so much. But um, in order to make um, it an international city where people really want to live would require um, politics that would um, attract uh, uh, people to come and reside there and institutions to come and be there. Why do you think that there is no concerted plan of that nature? Uh, uh,
1: I think that this is because we are, uh, uh, th- there is a m- much more general phenomenon that is not just relating to Venice or just to Italy or just to this particular. Uh, Topic: uh, We are we tend uh, to um, uh, reason uh, and to and to organize our our plans, uh, uh, thinking more about the immediate future than about the, the, the more or less distant future. So, uh, for the next uh, few months or days or even years, it is possible. Uh, uh, it is possible, and it is, uh, what's happening is, is that many people, uh, like Mayor or other people uh, who, are, who are governing Venice, they think that tourism is responding to all the needs. Of Venice, attracting an enormous number of people in Venice, they would stay there one day or two. They would buy something. They would uh, would uh, would stay there in, in bed and breakfast or hotel and so forth and so on. This is a a, a, a very myopic sort of way of looking at at, at Venice and at its future. I I think that in order to develop. Policies that can attract people not to visit Venice for one day or two or three, but to live in Venice, you need to make incentives for those people to live in Venice. And you, leave, uh, and, and, and you need to very carefully craft a, a plan by which living in Venice and working in, in Venice could be not just attractive, but convenient.
2: Given that there are at least... Uh, six and possibly as many as 13 different authorities responsible for different aspects of Venice, its lagoon and the surrounding mainland. Um, and given that they don't actually meet in any kind of forum to discuss future policy, do you think there is any hope for the future planning of Venice?
1: I think there is hope only if those uh, authorities will be in one way or another convinced or forced or uh, persuaded to uh, convene together and to and to and to uh, and to develop the right policies and I think that in this respect international opinion uh, given the, the fact that everybody uh, recognizes how precious and important Venice can, uh, can be not just for Venetians but for the humanity at, at large I think that pressure from uh, from public opinion from public opinion from every country Country around the world can be can be can be very important in this respect. Since unfortunately, the authorities themselves show uh, very little inclination to understand how important it would be for them to convene and to agree on some basic principles like. Uh, such as uh, as principles about uh, limiting the, the the number of uh, of uh, of second homes in venice or attracting people by uh, offering them fiscal incentives
2: it's a paradox isn't it that um one of the most damaging decisions uh, relating to the habitability of Venice was taken by the philosopher mayor uh, Cacciari, who was under whose um, uh, watch it was permitted for people to turn their houses into bed and breakfasts, yeah. which of course led to an enormous rise in property values um, and people leaving their buildings to go and live on the mainland and cash in on renting out their rooms. I mean, how is it that? Um, so many mayors have failed the city
1: well, I think that uh, if Cacciari wanted to show that Plato was wrong when he said that cities should be governed by philosophers, he fully succeeded and uh, i uh, I guess uh, uh, that uh, he started by having some uh, some uh, ideals and some uh, um, general uh, targets he might have had in mind or originally then uh, probably the, uh, i i don't know enough about it and i don't know enough him uh, though i know him personally but not enough i i i guess that he slowly became uh, more a politician than a philosopher and he started acting more as a politician than as a philosopher i mean uh, he started being um, uh, being open to pressures from uh, for, for Economic reason for, in, in order to look for uh, for for votes or for these sort of things, the uh, what, what he did cannot be explained on philosophical terms.
2: You um, attribute quite a lot of the blame to neoliberal economics. Um, would you like to explain how that affected Venice?
1: Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's a very uh, big uh, a very big topic. Uh, Obviously, I think that neoliberal economics has an, an impact on, on Venice in that it gives an absolute priority to, uh, to, to economy over culture, generally speaking, and to make a long story short, uh, it um, uh, has, has been repeatedly invoked by Italian politicians as the final proof that uh, if, if if you if you want to um, uh, to move forward in in the era of modernity and if, if you want to be a la page, you, you need to um, uh, invest uh, as little as possible uh, to get as much as possible tomorrow. Without thinking about what the day after tomorrow might happen, and this is something that is not necessarily part of neoliberal economy at the highest level, but it's certainly the way how it is interpreted, and how it is interpreted in 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 Europe more generally. Uh, there are other uh, examples. What uh, what what happened in in uh, in Greece by by, by 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 forcing Greece to cut uh, expenses on uh, on or on public health and uh, is is resulting in a, in an increasing rate of uh, of uh, of child uh, mortality. So that's uh, uh, it, it, it. It might be uh, beneficial to, Greek, to the Greek state budget in short term, but in long in the long run, it is not. So I, I think that my point is thinking in the short term or in the long durée, and I think that uh, thinking about cities but about about uh, human communities more, uh, more generally you should have uh, you should be able to look uh, at a long distance and to think about what will happen to the next generation to the generation after the next and after the next and after the next. I think that the right of the new generations, of the not unborn, yet unborn generation, is much more important than the right we have to, um, to fill our pocket tomorrow.
2: You've written many things about um, the heritage in Italy. You are welcomed by publishers of newspapers and so on because you write exceedingly, movingly and stirringly. Um, do you think that you have achieved any victories
1: Small victories. You can achieve small victories in this in, in this sector if you move in the, uh, in a direction that is contrary to uh, the mainstream. But I did achieve a number of victories. I did achieve a number of victories. Let me mention a couple of them. When uh, the uh, in the second Berlusconi government, they were trying to change the basic law for protection of cultural heritage in Italy they did. they had made a, a very complex committee of uh, 35 persons or something like this uh, all very important lawyers who had proposed to uh, restrict the number of uh, of monuments in public proper, in public property subject to uh, to uh, protection to what in italian is called tutela uh, to only the, those things that are of, of, of supreme importance, which is contrary to what uh, the, the Italian tradition, Italian uh, law uh, and legal tradition is. And I, uh, I succeeded in, in, uh, in, in, in persuading the minister of that point Giuliano Urbani to change his mind. Uh, we had a 11 hour meeting face to face, discussing my articles in the newspapers and at the end of it, I must recognize and I am very grateful to him he was the minister I was not we 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 fought for 11 hours with only water and without eating and after 11 hours he said you are right so we, uh, uh, this which was the main uh, change in uh, in uh, the main change in the project the, the lawyers had made was was not approved. This is very important because this means that in Rome not just the Pantheon or the basilicas are protected, but also even the smallest church if it is of, of historical interest. This this is so important in Italy that uh, it, it would have been a disaster. Uh, if uh, uh, that uh, that particular law would have, would have been passed. So that's just to mention one.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Professor Setis.
1: Thank you.
0: If Venice Dies is published by Pallas Athene in Britain and New Vessel Press in the US. Now, Tassiter Dean is the first artist to have simultaneous exhibitions at three of London's great museums and galleries, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery and the Royal Academy. The shows are dedicated to three of the classical artistic genre. Portraiture at the National Portrait Gallery and Still Life at the National Gallery open this week and Landscape at the Royal Academy opens in May. I spoke to Tester about the shows here at the National Portrait Gallery would you say that like so many things in your career, there's a sort of an element of chance or coincidence about how these shows have come about?
3: In the sense that um, I was asked by the National Portrait Gallery and uh, the Royal Academy simultaneously um, to do this exhibition. So in a way that is, you know, a a chance interaction. And then um, once I talked to Nick Cullinan about it, who's National Portrait Gallery, he you know suggested um that we do genre and then invited the national gallery in for still life
0: how has working with these classical genres been because it's not an easy thing to pigeonhole your works into those genres
3: no but i think i'm not do i think i'm doing the opposite um because i'm not pigeonholing anything into those genres but the what what helped was that the genre gave me um a sort of pattern in which to sort of play with the idea of what is a still life, a portrait or a landscape clearly in the National Portrait Gallery was a sort of easier starting point but even then I didn't really ever see those that group of films as portraits per se but you know clearly they can be seen as that and they probably will be from now on but um, every one of those came from a different um, point so you know the interesting thing about the portraits is that, for example, I'm asked about my sitters. You know the language of the National Portrait Gallery is a very traditional language, and it's like I've never thought of the the, the, the subjects as sitters. There's you know they're subjects or they're just films. So, and and then um, you know how that can then become, for example, as I mentioned uh, before, that's, you know Merce Cunningham performing. Uh, stillness which was the four minutes 33 moment of silence that was composed by his long-term partner John Cage is also a still life in a sense and so you know and so as soon as I started and especially in the still life exhibition I could really play with the idea of what a still life is and um and that was quite a nice pleasurable thing to do.
0: There's a really nice part of the National Portrait Gallery show where that connection between portraiture and still life is very clear, which is the photographs of Cy Twombly's studio in Gator. Mm-hmm. And that very much is a portrait of someone, and yet he doesn't feature in them. Can you tell me about that process?
3: Um, that was, yes, that was a, f- a photo essay I made as, in lieu of writing anything about Cy Twombly's exhibition in Vienna. You know, it's, a, it's, it's how to portray somebody through their possessions and their circumstance which is actually what my films are generally um, you know I the portraits films I mean the films I shouldn't in this exhibition are depictions in the sense that they are much more about the description of atmosphere time of day you know possessions and is a way of describing somebody rather than just make, getting lightness but the one thing that threw me off is when I decided to try and do a miniature which is all about lightness and i you know within a miniature it's so small and the face you know the lightness has to be so specific that there's not a lot of room for possessions and background and other descriptive means so um that was a completely different way of, of making a portrait and that world very consciously making a portrait
0: tell me about the, the piece is called his picture in little which is a quote from hamlet all three of the, pe- the people that you depict have played hamlet What what was the significance of Hamlet, or was that just something that connected them?
3: In a way, it was an aside to the whole thing. Um, It came out of the Aperture Gate masking system that I was... Because when I was invited to do these three exhibitions, I really wanted to make a new film for each one. And then the major new work um, that I invested in is for the Royal Academy, which opens in a while, which is Antigone. And I wanted to do Antigone with this Apogee Gate masking system that I, invent, that I invented for the Turbine Hall in uh, 2011, which allows for multiple exposures within the same film frame. So when I suddenly thought, uh, well, maybe I could try and do that in relation to portraiture, and when I was going around the space with Nick Cullinan and we have the main exhibition space, and I thought we both decided it would be a wonderful thing to have a work particularly in the, the traditional, you know, spaces upstairs. And, and I really liked the idea of the miniatures gallery. So uh, then I decided to... A miniature. So how can I make a miniature? So it was a combination of all these things. You know, the best way would be to do it in this... Um, with my masking um, in the gate and trying to film people together. And originally, I had other ideas originally, um, like King and Queen or, or, you know, other things. And in the end... Um, you know through again through situations of contingency and chance and all sorts of things for for a very very long time I'd been um trying to seduce uh, David Warner the actor David Warner to 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 be in something uh, originally for Sydney um and he you know and he he said no and um eventually I was writing to him I said well you know I can film you in a film frame with anything you want, for example, like a hummingbird. And he agreed, and so uh, and in fact, that's another film in the in the show, Providence. But and then I said, well, you know, who would go opposite? Who would sit really well? And I'd had a, a contact with Ben Wisher for a while, and I thought, my God, actually, they're very kind of the counterpoise is very perfect. And then I was working with Stephen. In um, for Antigone. This
0: is Stephen Delane
3: Stephen Delane and I just—it just suddenly thought, oh my god, they all played Hamlet in very prominent ways. Not just having played it, they played it um, on the London stage. Two of them directed by Peter Hall, so Peter Hall and uh, David Warner and Ben were the both young, both the youngest of their generation. So suddenly, this was connective thread. And um, and originally it was like three, you know, portrait of three actors in one frame and all the other former titles. And then I was watching, you know, Kenneth Branagh playing Hamlet, the film, and he said his picture in Little, and I thought, bang, that's my (laughs) title. (laughs) So, and the, uh, the whole point about it is that they're filmed completely separately, but within the same film frame, which is conceptually quite difficult to explain to a digital generation, but it just means that. You know, you, a film, a photochemical frame is, you know, caused by light um, passing through an aperture or a window onto emulsion. And if you stencil or block that in some way, then I can put, uh, you know, one actor on the left, cover him up, rewind the film, and expose the other one in the middle, and then the one on the right. And and then I don't see, you know, it's utterly blind, and that's the point. And it's a beautiful thing to do to gesture because. There you have three actors who are used to being directed. And I didn't direct them. I had to let them just be themselves, which, of course, brings in an element of discomfort. And what I, at pains with my other films to do is, I, the one thing I don't like is a very sort of obvious self-consciousness. But, of course, this was all about self-consciousness. But because of the blindness of the, you know, the, ma- the means of making it, is that you don't know what will happen with the gestures on the movements of the other elements in the frame until it's all exposed and suddenly it's really beautiful when you know because it it emphasizes gesture and in a a very very extraordinary and unimaginable way
0: and there's all sorts of wonderful conversations that happen through that that obviously you can't plan for but it appears that one might be reacting to something that the other person's done this is quite by chance but it's a really beautiful thing to to behold
3: and it's otherworldly enough to know that it you get a sense that it's not deliberate that it's not directed you see this is the whole point about working with film is the importance of what i cannot make it do myself because not everything a, a human being or a, you know a, an artist in my case does is necessarily the right decision and the importance in an artistic practice of letting the medium in some way control what you do which is actually if you to speak to any artist they will understand this you know and I use the quote Francis Bacon talks often about making a mark with paint that he didn't intend to do and then he realized it's a better thing because the medium has made the mark and um, and these are three very very important things about Working film is that what everything that's you know not deliberate in film, and it's like the equivalent of working in darkness as opposed to the lights being on in a way. Digital, you see everything, and it it means you can over control it because you're I don't want to see everything, I don't want to over control it, I don't want you know, it has to be I need that blindness.
0: One of the things that's really striking is that the National Portrait Gallery, you're very conscious of projectors, it's very much that sculptural and sonic appeal of the projector in the national gallery where you're showing some of your works alongside works that you've chosen from the collection and brought in from elsewhere you're very much more aware of a connection with painting Mm -hmm. and the frame of the, the film frame connecting to the to the to the to the painting can you tell me about that how conscious is that association um did you feel differently about the films that you're showing there to the ones that you're showing in the national gallery in national portrait gallery
3: I always feel that I come from a relationship to painting more than I do to cinema or any other users of the medium of film. And um, my my work's always about depicting something. So for a very long time, and um, some of my films, like even as early as, uh, you know, Gelliet, when I filmed in the bath in Gelliet Baths in Hungary, I had, you know, that had such a reference to Kranach and, and painting that I would always put the screen in, you know, embed it inside the wall. And you know, and then it would be much and a very small as well, on a small scale. So that references painting, and so this was clear, and also the architecture of the two spaces. It was very clear that that's what how it had to be with the the shirt, the, the films in this exhibition.
0: Tell me about the works that you've chosen. There's lovely associations between not just the paintings that one might expect to see in a in a national gallery display of still lives, but between the paintings from the National Gallery and works by contemporary artists that seems to me a very deliberate choice to to make associations but across time
3: well what I had is you know when it the whole thing grew and it it became an ability to choose works from originally just from the National Gallery collection and then they said I was able to choose a few from the National Collection um and I very much wanted to bring in works of of contemporary artists and and in in a sense, I, I, I chose very familiar people in my life in order to make those juxtapositions. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be able to do that because, you know, I could put a Thomas Demand daily, which is these, um, you know, photographic works that he makes from paper that he does. He calls them dailies because in a way he makes them in a day. And they're like little incidents, like dailies, like cinema dailies. And um, sort of a, of a just a, a plate and a, an elastic band next to the head of John the Baptist, you know, both very clear plates but containing different things. But so it's from the sublime to the ridiculous in a way. And what is what is stopping, you know, Saint John the Baptist's head being a still life? And then I had saw that I had the opportunity to borrow, uh, you know, Guston's huge painting hat from Tate. And so you've got these three, you know, that wall is very much around the head, the missing head. I mean, there's a, and like the birds, it's like the missing head, the head and the, uh, you know, the missing head and, and the birds, you know, I have borrowed, um, Sparrowhawk was the work from the National Gallery. Then I borrowed like the bird, bird cage from, um, Gwen John. Uh, and, uh, and then these two stuffed owls from, um, Ronnie Horn, and a flea market photograph of a little funeral for a Budgie. And then I bought him my own film, Ear on a Worm, which is just a, a bird singing, sitting on a wire in Los Angeles. And there you have a tethered bird, a stuffed bird, a missing bird, a dead bird, and a living bird, all on one wall. It's, it's, and, you know, putting Wolfgang Tillman's with uh, Zuberan and um, and then my own new film, um, Ideas for Sculpture in a Setting, which is about Henry Moore's flint, one of Henry Moore's flints collect, from his flint collection with uh, Paul Nash and Thomas Guest, who was this sort of painter from Salisbury who used to draw, you know, paint barrow finds, archaeological finds. And and then I even, you know, I wanted to borrow this painting by Chrome of A uh, Study of Flints, which was a huge connection to Paul Nash. I mean, I couldn't borrow it, so I, I painted a facsimile little gallery postcard. So I could, you know, little things like that. So it was kind of... The show, in the sense, was a great pleasure to do because it wasn't... Um, you know, it was, it's quite simple in a way. I mean, very formal sometimes, very formal sometimes. Conceptual relationships and and just bringing in a few, uh, you know, works and uh, like Twombly's bread and you know, and even John Craxton's hair and, and a few things.
0: I'd like to ask about a very small work, but it seems to me a very powerful work in the National Portrait Gallery show, which is between two spaces. And if you walk too fast between them, you'd miss it. It's a self-portrait wearing Mirandi's hat. Tell me about that work.
3: Um, it's not even really a work. It's just uh, there was a space, and I was I wanted to try and do a, a self-portrait. and um, In a way, the fact that it's just a sort of digital snap, because it is a digital photograph, um, is a sort of failure for me. But, um, you know, when I was filming uh, in Mirandi's studio, you know, I did uh, put his hat on and took a self-portrait in his hat in the mirror. Um, I don't know why. It was 2008. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Ten years old, that picture, actually. And I just thought, in the end, well, you know, why not?
0: So much of the work is about uh, about connecting to artists. So that seems to me that, again, that in in a, in a way that's what you're doing with the film of David Hockney, with...
3: Well, I've, I love... I've always been very interested in uh, the creative... A process and um, and you know what is people don't really understand about artists is that it's 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 much more obtuse than you imagine and and you you know to just I mean Julie is working but and day you know um, but this is Julie Merritt Merritt, yeah. Merritt sorry uh, in the the diptych I made of her um, she's a painter American painter and then but meanwhile Cy is Cy Twombly is just sitting in a chair, um, waiting for that encounter. So it's all... And, you know, and, and David Hockney is smoking a cigarette and, and you know, and Michael Hamburger, the poet, is, is just sort of... He goes from snoozing and reading the newspaper. But I think there's been a, a cinematic failure about how to depict artists. And usually it's because they're toiling over a canvas with a low-burning candle. And the truth of the matter is, is... And I'm very interested in this idea of... Um, and there was a beautiful essay by uh, Robert Walser um, co- called um, Berlin and the Artists. And it's all about this idea of sluggardizing, about, you know, working when you're lying, uh, between, literally between animal pelts. And, um, you know, often a, a great artist is made when you appear to the world to be just sort of uh, lounging about. And I, I really appreciate that condition of, you know, and it's a, it's a it's a bit lost to our world where you are allowed to actually just be... Uh, kind of prone and daydreaming and I, I kind of regret that um, I, even I don't do it enough
0: Tester, thank you so much Welcome Tasta Dean Portrait at the National Portrait Gallery and Still Life at the National Gallery continue until 28th of May Her exhibition Landscape is at the Royal Academy from the 19th of May to 12th of August You can read Louisa Buck's interview with Tacita in the current print edition of The Art Newspaper. And that's it for this week. You can tell us what you think of the podcast on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and subscribe wherever you normally find your podcasts. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can do so at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks for listening. Until next week.